0: Representing the best in content creation, BombPod Media. You can find us now on iTunes. Just search BombPod Media. Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island. Grab a catheter and pull up a wheelchair. You're listening to Karen Wickham's stat: shocking traumas and treatments, where sometimes it's the cure that kills you. Woo hoo! What an amazing intro. Thank you, Cambo from True Crime Island. I think I need to adopt that as my permanent intro. It's so awesome. So today's show is about Harold Shipman, the UK's most notorious serial killer. This monster was responsible for the deaths of over 250 of his own patients. Most of them were elderly ladies. Before I get started on this horror story, I'd like to give out some thank yous for some wonderful iTunes reviews from KD Valencia, Boo underscore Kiel, Greenfire 7047, and R Stanton. Thank you, peeps, for listening, for taking the time to leave a review or a rating. You know how much it means to me. It really helps to get this podcast Heard, noticed, and easy to find. So if you haven't done it yet, if you don't mind stopping over and giving me a review or rating, that would be awesome. Okay, let's get started. First of all, let's take a deep breath in and out. I need to do that for myself because I need to show great restraint when telling this story. It's the 1970s, small town England. You call your GP for a minor complaint. You'd like an appointment to see him in his office, surgery. He insists on visiting you at home and you gently protest saying you're well enough to come into his office, but he insists and you smile and think to yourself, how lucky am I to have such a wonderful and caring doctor? It's so like him to go out of his way for my comfort. So you agree to his visit. And he says that he will see you within the hour. True to his word, he arrives, smile on his face and doctor's bag in hand. He asks you a couple of questions and says that he would like to draw some blood to send to the lab for various tests. And he would also like to give you an injection to help you feel better. You think to yourself, I really don't need all of this, but doctor knows best. You trust him without question. After all, he is your doctor. You're wonderful caring doctor. You sit in the chair and roll up your sleeve and you feel the sharp prick in your arm and within minutes you feel nothing at all. You've just been given a lethal dose of morphine. That doctor was Harold Shipman. Over his career he killed over 250 patients, mostly elderly women, and he sometimes killed other members of the same family. He takes jewelry for trophy, and he sometimes empties their purses. He even tries to have a patient's entire worth left to him in their will. And it was that that led to his downfall. Who do you think is the most dangerous type of serial killer? I believe the worst kind is the one who's in a position of trust, a doctor or a nurse. One of the first things I learned in nursing school is that we're in the ultimate position of trust. It's something that most people understand right away, and I know I did. I came from a family of medical people, medical backgrounds. It was on my first rotation in the hospital, giving direct patient care, that it really hit home. It never left me, and even though I was only trained to give the most basic of care at the time, it was care all the same. The patient trusted that I would be respectful and kind, and I would maintain their dignity and confidentiality. Their life was in my hands. It made me feel a little lightheaded and a bit queasy at the thought of it. Why? Because it is such a huge responsibility and there is no room for error. Now, I just don't want to talk about Harold Shipman here. He doesn't deserve all the focus. His victims do. And it's important to talk about them. In doing so, hopefully we can uncover some of the ways that we can detect serial killers because out of all serial killers, murderers, rapists, and criminals, they are the hardest to detect. They hide in plain sight. Anyone who is a true crime connoisseur, or even just socially aware, likely knows the hallmarks, traits of a serial killer, psychopath, sociopath. I'm just going to review a few of them right now. One trait is that they are power junkies. Serial killers have a real affinity with power. Even when they get caught and they know the game is up, they're intent on exerting some kind of control over the people around them and they often hold back bits of crucial info on a bid to maintain power over the situation, gain attention, and assert a warped sense of authority. Now, doctors already have an abundance of power and authority. So when you add this on top of it, it is just... A prescription for terror. They're also great manipulators. Apparent vulnerability and the need to please have been used effectively time and time again by serial killers as a way of hiding a sinister personality. Some of the world's best known serial killers have a frightening ability to manipulate those around them. Pressing the right buttons in order to present themselves in a false light. Serial killers are often able to manipulate a situation in order to... Pass blame for their actions, using hot-button issues of the day or medical and psychological research to try and explain their actions. Shipman used his position as a medical expert to manipulate his patients into treatments that ultimately killed them while posing as a caring member of society. Serial killers are egotistical braggarts. Egotistical serial killers often can't help but brag about the atrocities they've committed, whether it's aimed at their accomplices, the next victim, law enforcement, or just themselves. Sometimes they do this by taking mementos to review, remember, remind themselves about how amazing they are. Next is that they're superficial charmers. They tend to have a very good grasp of other people's emotions and are quick to pick up on any vulnerability or weakness in order to convince them into doing things they normally wouldn't. They'll get others on their side and take charge of a situation with a mix of compliments and common sense. So they appear to be quite competent. Meanwhile, they've just got your head running in so many different directions that you may agree with them. The other thing is that they're an average Joe or appear to be just a regular everyday person. And this is possibly the scariest trait of all. Many serial killers look like a pillar of the community at first sight. It's a way of gaining trust, only to abuse it in the most appalling ways. This tactic has enabled many to get away with a lot of deviant stuff behind closed doors. So like I said earlier, you apply all these characteristics to a physician, a nurse uh, who is in a position of trust, they have knowledge of medicine. They know how to hide what they're doing. They know the inner workings of hospitals, medical ethics, policies, and procedure, and they're usually quite smart. So, you have one of the most dangerous predators out there. Now, I want to go back and start at the beginning of Shipman's life. It's, I'm not saying that monsters like this deserve any sympathy. I'm not. But I think it's really important to start at the beginning of their lives and study them to try to figure out how things like this can happen. And if we can sort of see things early on or note certain personality traits early on, maybe we can stop these horrible things from happening in the future. We can only hope. Now, before I take a dive into Shipman's life, I'd like to tell you about a great service, a great product where you can go and create your own personalized photo calendar online in minutes. All you have to do is simply upload your photos from your computer, smartphone, or Instagram account. You choose from a variety of photo page layouts and background designs, add birthdays and personal events, and of course they save your events, making it easier to create for next year. Their calendars are top quality and most orders print within 48 hours. Now, they have a special offer right now for podcast listeners. Go to createphotos.com, make your calendar, and then save up to 55% using coupon code PODCAST. And this coupon is good until the end of the year. Okay, let's go back in time and talk about young Harold Shipman. How does a monster get made? Or is he made? Or is he born that way? Or is he born and made that way? Hmm. The age-old question that I hope one day that we'll be able to answer. Harold Frederick Shipman was born January 14th, 1946, to Vera and Harold Shipman. He was the first boy and second middle child. His family affectionately called him Freddie because he had the same name as his father. So at times I may refer to him as Harold or Freddy or Harold Freddy or Harry Freddy. Okay, no joking. He was brought up on a council estate in Nottingham. His father was a lorry driver, and although they were no better or worse off than the rest of the neighborhood, they acted standoffish and snobby, superior to their neighbors. Fred was the middle child, and his mother doted on him. The Shipman children were held at a higher standard than all the other children in the neighborhood. Vera believed that her kids were better than all the other kids in the neighborhood, She chose who they could play with and when. She was even more particular with Freddie. She dressed him in shirts and bow ties and short pants while his sisters and brothers could dress more casually. She favored Harold because she saw him as the clever one, the one that she had plans for, the one with the biggest possibilities. The Shipman children rarely mixed with other kids on the street. And he didn't go out to play because he was usually in the house with his older sister and younger brother doing his homework. Now, Fred did have a couple of what you would call close friends, as close as they could be, but he associated only with them as per his mother's permission and the same boys all the way through school. One of Harold's school friends, Bob Stunholm, described him as this, quote, He was always on the fringe, but he placed himself on the fringe. He wasn't prepared to laugh at the daft things that we as adolescent boys were all up for. I remember once in the changing rooms, after a practice, a chap was telling a dirty joke, and we were all guffawing at the punchline, and I happened to turn away from the group because I was aware that Fred was sitting just behind me. He'd heard all this, and he looked at me and smiled as if to say, "'Don't worry, you'll get better as you get older.'" I don't believe there was anyone who was a super close friend with Fred. He'd always be there towards the outside of the group, standing calmly and looking about. End of quote. 11-year-old Fred was accepted to a private grammar school in Nottingham. His parents were extremely proud, especially Vera, who did not want Fred to go to just any school. The school believed in not just education, but also excellence in sports. Fred was a natural athlete, but he had to work hard at getting good marks. His marks were mediocre and he struggled with English and writing, but he was an excellent rugby player, more skilled than strongly built. Here is a quote from Bob Studholm. He was a man of few words, a man of action, very determined, hard and quick. He had a streak of ruthlessness. He was a lamb in the house and a lion on the field, I think is the expression. When Harold Fred was 17 years old, his mom was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, which in the 1960s meant a long and painful death. The neighbors hadn't a clue because the shipments kept to themselves. After school, Fred would rush home to be at his mother's side, and she likely counted down the hours and minutes until he came home. Fred took over the care and comfort of his dying mother. His father was too busy, working to support the family, and he distanced himself emotionally. His siblings afforded little support. This fell happily on Freddie's shoulders. As Vera's illness progressed, she was in constant pain, was emaciated and gaunt and debilitated. She could hardly raise the energy to sit up and spent all of her time in bed. Harold Fred was normally present when the doctor arrived to administer the morphine, the only thing that would quickly and thoroughly relieve her terrible pain. The routine is that the doctor would administer the morphine injection, but it had to be witnessed. So Harold would be his witness. It must have made a profound impression on him. This was his first experience of seeing that particular drug at work. I believe that there is no coincidence in the fact that in later life, Dr. Shipman chose the afternoon as a time to administer his lethal injections or that he used the same drug, morphine. The emotional impact of watching the effects of such a strong pain-killing opiate would have made a huge impact on the 17-year-old traumatized by the imminent death of a much loved and doting parent. The maternal attachment is an extremely important thing. His mother was receiving injections of morphine and he was witnessing that and he might have gotten some kind of thrill out of it maybe. Here is a quote from psychologist Paul Britton. This would have been very much in his inner world, and it may well be that this, interlinked with his fascination with death and control over life and death, may have been something which gradually became the stronger and stronger engine in terms of personality, then one day he begins to act it out. When you look at his choice of morphine, he has a history with it. From his point of view, it's effectiveness. It works easily and quickly. It's not messy. It's something he's comfortable quote. Vera Shipman died in a morphine-induced coma with her son, Freddie at her side on June 21st, 1963. He himself likely moved from a sense of anguish to a release of that after she had passed. So there would be at least the beginning and signs that a sense of peacefulness would come with the delivery of morphine. This is something that he likely developed or led to the development of him being a killer. Here's another quote from Paul Britton. Shipman will be visualizing how his mother looked in death. And this, I think, is one of the key drives for the man. Other people who kill under similar circumstances need some motivational drive for the peaceful joy that comes from the death and dying process. I think Shipman had the same deep and profound joy in the presence of death and then particularly seeing the transition of someone from life to death. So it seems that maybe his kick, his satisfaction came in the process of death. Starting, watching, controlling, and ending life. It may have been the result and not the actual act of murder that drove Shipman to kill and kill again. What he's looking for is that great peace, that joyfulness, that sense of everything in the world was going to be okay. He felt that he could play God and decide when a particular patient should die. After the person died, Shipman would arrange their bodies and their limbs to exactly how he wanted them to look, like a scene in a tableau. I think the way Vera died, first in terrible pain, emaciated and so weak that she couldn't sit up, The doctor arriving, relieving her pain with an injection of morphine. Then the pain is relieved, the grimace is gone from her face, she falls asleep and dies peacefully. It wasn't the one event of injecting the morphine, but a series of events that led up to it. Overbearing mother taught him to have an inflated sense of himself, sense of entitlement, narcissism, placing himself above all people. His mother's illness and then death, and the mode of her death was the icing on the cake. After his mother died, you may have expect for him to show great grief and sorrow. But what happened instead was that he compartmentalized his feelings. He shortly after went out at two o'clock in the morning and ran for hours and hours in the rain. So he went out, shut down his emotions, came back home and acted like nothing happened. And he told no one that his mother had died until the weekend after when his buddy said to him, hey, anything exciting happened this weekend? And he simply answered, my mom died. His friends were stunned, and they didn't know what to say to him. They were confused by his lack of emotion. So all of this is evidence of his psychopathy. With his already formed sociopathic personality, the death of his mother had taught him that he could isolate himself from his emotions. His ability to do this in a stressful situation would prove extremely useful for to him once he began killing. He could be calm and a matter of fact and controlled. Now, the death of his mother would have more than one obvious effect on him. Freddie Shipman had a sudden desire to be a doctor. He had never mentioned before his mother death that he wanted to be a doctor. So he changed his studies in school to get him entrance into medical college. He took chemistry and physics and biology. He was not a natural student not even a good student. In fact, he had to repeat all his classes over at least once. It's unlikely that he initially became a doctor to murder people. I think that he saw himself as being an important heroic figure. However, his desire to be a doctor and his psychopathic desire to kill would collide. In September 1965, two years after his mother's death, Shipman left his home in Nottingham and headed north to Leeds University Medical School. One thing that medical students are subjected to early on in, in their training is that they work with a lot of corpses. Here is a quote describing his attitude towards dealing with death and dying. Quote, there are postmortems. They are working with remains, visiting sick people in the hospitals, quite possibly being present as people die. So by the time he finished his early medical training, he would have been quite familiar with death. According to some of his fellow medical students, Fred Shipman was fascinated with corpses. He was not squeamish about handling a body, and he is said to have stayed in a hospital morgue after other students had gone home, claiming that he stayed behind to spend more time on studying the body. This may have provided the thrill sensation that budding murderers and serial killers seek, end of quote. During his second year in med school, he met his future wife, 16-year-old Primrose Oxtoby. She worked as a window dresser. She wasn't a very educated or intelligent young woman, but she seemed to have a flair with art. She came from a very strict background. Her parents were Methodists, God-fearing people. She couldn't wear makeup or go dancing, and this was the 60s when women were exploring their sexuality and fighting for equality. Primrose was sheltered from all of that. She was naive and giggly young lady. Not at all like the large sour-faced lady in a dull shapeless raincoat that the media would, would portray many years later. A woman who would attend the trial of her husband every day but would not talk to the press or show any emotion. Shirley Horsfield, Primrose's friend, in school, remembers her as a, quote, bundle of laughs, really very good company, good fun, very down to earth, very jolly, very bubbly, and vivacious. Harold was seen as quite the catch, especially to 16-year-old Primrose. At the time, he was a good-looking athletic medical student. They met each other riding on the bus when he was going to school and she was going to work, and soon they were dating, and not short after that, she had a bun in the oven. She was pregnant with Harold's baby. Primrose was quite happy about this. It's not known how Harold felt at the time, but many years later, he told a nurse that he was working with that getting Primrose pregnant was a mistake. And he said, I was a bright boy. I should have known better, shouldn't I? Primrose's parents were unhappy to say the least. Primrose's father had a soft spot for her. And when he found out that Harold was going to marry her, he was a little less upset. Her mother, however, would never get over it. She would always hold a grudge against her daughter. It was bad enough that she got pregnant, but it was even worse that she would be marrying Harold. She thought him to be a smarmy and superior acting jerk. Even though Primrose tried to have a relationship with her mother, her mother didn't reciprocate. She even cut her out of her will. Harold Shipman and Primrose Oxdeby had a shotgun wedding on November 5th, 1966. Harold was 20 and Primrose 17. No family or friends attended, there were no pictures, and the wedding was a source of great shame for her parents, and they wanted it to be hushed up. The young couple lived in a small student college accommodation apartment. Fred worked long hours, and when Primrose wasn't working, she spent a lot of time alone. She moved back to the home of her parents in the final weeks of her pregnancy. Harold wasn't very welcome there, and this really pissed him off because he expected to be treated with the utmost of respect and reverence. After all, Harold Shipman was soon to be Dr. Harold Shipman. Primrose and Harold's daughter, Sarah, was born on February 14th, 1967. Harold would have likely felt a lot of resentment about his life because he would have felt penned in. He had a psychopathic personality. He would have resented the constraints that would have been put on him by an unplanned pregnancy. He likely felt caged. On the outside, he would have appeared to have accepted that, but he had a huge ego and he was arrogant and self regarding He was boxed in and his anger was growing in that tight space. This man was a narcissist, overwhelmed by self-regard, who genuinely wouldn't be able to understand why other people didn't feel the same about him. Anything that drew attention away from him would be seen as deviant, hostile, deliberately disrespectful. To sum it up, here's a quote by Colonel Robert Ressler, who had personally interviewed most of America's serial killers. Quote, In the space of four years, Shipman had lost his mother to cancer met his first girlfriend, lost his virginity, faced the stress of an unplanned pregnancy and a forced marriage, and was trying to study in a sphere that more than stretched his limited academic ability. Anything that entails personal internal trauma and upheaval will push these people to these acts of violence. That this stress combined with frustration and anger in a psychopath is a potentially murderous combination because they're mad, they're angry, it leads them, it pushes them to their first offense. End of quote. Faced with the stress of trying to study for his medical exams and the responsibility of a wife and new baby, the young medical student began taking drugs. Medical students learn all about pharmacology and have relatively easy access to it. Not so much now, but it was a little bit more accessible in the 1960s. Although most young doctors undergoing the stresses of medical school would go out and get drunk, Fred started taking pethidine, also known as Demerol, which is a strong opioid narcotic painkiller. At the time, it was commonly used in childbirth because it also had the effect of uh, being a muscle relaxant. And the other effect was euphoria, which makes it highly addictive. It feels good when you take it. Here's another quote. Here was another link in the chain. The young boy who considered himself superior and who had learned to shut down his emotions had discovered a fascination with the effects of morphine. Now frustrated by his personal life and overcome by the stress of his studies, he accidentally found the calming effects of Demerol, helped him through long hours of study, end of quote. I gotta tell you, I don't know how that would help him through long hours of study because any kind of opioid makes you drowsy. So I don't know, I guess he was a special case. We know he was. In 1970, Shipman sat a month of final exams and while others in his year achieved honors degrees, he scraped by with a pass. This would have antagonized his sense of superiority. At this time, he had been concealing his drug habit for three years while carrying out clinical work at Leeds General Infirmary. That's just frightening. Harold's arrogance had left him believing that his addiction would always go undetected, that he could get away with what he wished and he could outsmart anyone. He would now be free to write his own prescriptions. Ah, all of that is just so scary. First of all, he's shooting up Demerol while taking care of patients when he should be learning. So the drugs would have affected his ability to learn. His He may have had a bit of a short-term memory, but long-term, he couldn't have learned anything properly and he was already a crappy student. Now on top of that, he could write his own prescriptions. Terrifying. So he felt he was above the system. He had fooled other doctors who were supposedly Older and wiser than him, doctors who had not given him the academic credit he deserved or thought he deserved. He had an even bigger sense of superiority now because, regardless of his marks, being a doctor had put him in a position of respect, trust, and above all, power. So, after he finished and unfortunately passed his exams, he moved his wife and daughter out of the tiny flat into a larger doctor's staff house. So I think everything up to now has led to the perfect storm. Here's a quote from psychologist Paul Britton. You have a person who is in many ways pent up by now and at the same time is developing his need for recognition and this comes together when he is involved in direct hands-on care determining of the future of his patients. I'm going to wrap up this episode right now because the next episode will be covering the beginning and active years of his murders. And there is a lot to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next episode. It's going to be a wild ride and I look forward to sharing it with you. But wait, we're not done yet. It's time for the Suit your room! Come on in. You know where to go. I've got the room set up just for you. And this time, I drew some pictures to make it look like there's windows. And I drew some nice trees with clouds and a smiley sun face. I've got your favorite drinks tea and apple juice. I've got some pureed beef and a couple cookies. I thought that you deserved a little treat. So cuddle all up in in that warm blankie and that fluffy pillow, that pillow filled with air and nothing else, and get ready for a wild, wacky, weird, and true story that I experienced while working in the emergency room. There are no less than a billion things that can bring a person into the ER. All of which can be scary on a scale of 1 to 10. Emergency medicine is complicated. There's a lot to know. We kind of know a lot about a little and a little about a lot. But one of the most important things is this concept. A. B. C. Airway. Breathing. Breathing circulation. Airway. Is a person breathing okay? Is their airway open? Is there an obstruction, swelling, or injury? Are they awake or unconscious? Are they able to protect their airway, meaning that they can keep their body in a position where they can keep the air from flowing in and out? Or is there something from stopping them from doing that? So, Do they need us to help us or not? So that's your airway. Breathing. How are they breathing? Is the patient conscious or unconscious? Can they breathe on their own? What's their pattern of breathing? Rise and fall of their chest is equal. Breath sounds. Is it clear or rattling? Wheezing? What? What do you hear when you listen? Do they have asthma or pulmonary edema? What's the color of their skin? What's the rate of breathing? Stuff like that. And then circulation. C. So you're checking for the quality of circulation. Is there an absence of circulation? Is there heart pumping? Is the blood moving around oxygen in the body? What's their skin color? Cap refill, meaning if you pinch the nail on your thumb or finger or toe, and if it goes white and then turns and the blood fills back fast, means your circulation is good if you pinch it or press on it and it takes a long time to refill or go back to that nice pink color, then your circulation isn't so great. So you want to listen to the heart. What's the pump sound like? What's the pulse rate? You want to do an ECG if they had a heart attack? So these are your very basics, yet fundamentally key parts of medicine, A, B, C. We check this on every single person that comes into the emergency room. In fact, as nurses, I think we check it on everyone we see, whether at work or not, retired, you name it. We, it could be something as easy as a quick body scan. What's the color of their skin? What do they look like? Uh, or something much more in depth needing more testing. This is actually leading somewhere. Trust me, it's more than just a little lesson. <laughs> okay. One of the scariest things that can happen to a person is choking. I know that I'm terrified of it. It's instantaneous and terrifying. You go from enjoying a meal or riding on your motorcycle and all of a sudden, whap, there's a bee in your throat or a chunk of apple stuck. And you've only got a couple of minutes, less than that to clear the obstruction. And you're sort of at the mercy of who's around you, whether they can help you or not or whether you have the ability to throw yourself over the back of the couch and pop it out yourself or a chair or something. Your body does do a pretty good job at protecting itself, but every now and then something can go down the wrong hole and get stuck. One thing is for certain though, if you're able to talk, then you are breathing. Try not to panic. Let your body cough and try to clear the obstruction itself. Now, I was taking care of a woman who could not grasp this concept. One day while working in the trauma area, I had a lady brought in who had a choking incident. She was breathing on her own. Her color was great. Oxygen sats were 98 to 100 vitals stable, if not a little rapid because she was freaking out. And um, so we put her on the table and hooked her up to a monitor just, you know, for her vitals to see that she was continually doing okay. She was not choking and she didn't appear to have any type of obstruction in her airway. Now, she said she could feel something stuck in her throat, could be something stuck in her esophagus, but it was definitely not anything lodged in her trachea. There were no signs of it. So what the next step was to monitor her, have an x-ray done just to make sure that there wasn't a foreign body or whatever it was stuck in her esophagus. So here's the story. She went out for dinner with her family at the steakhouse called The Keg. And she said she was uh, eating a steak and started choking on it. It sounds like that at no point she stopped breathing. But she was definitely panicking. So the ambulance was called. They arrived and she was beside herself, convinced that she was choking to death and dying. And no one could calm her down at all. By the time she got to me, she was hysterical. She wouldn't sit still. I had a hard time keeping her hooked up because she would get on the bed and off the bed and she would like tear around the room in these little crazy like chihuahua circles and she was making all these crazy sounds and like she was trying to rip her clothes off and I started thinking maybe she is here for another reason that we should check out but... Anyway, I had to be a little firm with her, and I don't like being that way, but I had to say, look, you need to sit down and sit still and listen to me. Look in my eyes. I will show you on the monitor that you are doing okay. Well, her hysterics led to her starting to cough and gag and get herself. She was so worked up. So I handed her a little basin so she could puke into because that's where she was headed. And I sort of backed away from the bed and watched her just to see what was going to happen. And just as I got a little space between us, she hacked up or puked up or whatever a massive, partially chewed, slimy piece of cow flesh. And it shot up out of her mouth like a bullet and went straight up in the air and then flew down her hospital gown. And she, then all like then she just sat there. Frozen, looking stunned, not moving. And I was trying so hard not to laugh because you got to picture this hysterical lady now frozen in place and this massive glob of meat boom, out of her mouth, boom, down her shirt. So anyway, <laughs> I calmly walked over to her. I had my gloves on and I told, like, indicated that I needed to reach down her gown So I reached out and I plucked out this huge piece of meat. I don't know what she was thinking. I mean, it was huge. And so I showed it to her and I asked her if she felt better. And then all of a sudden she started to like tap and touch all over her body. And I don't know what she was doing. Like, is she checking that everything was still there? Like maybe she was missing a brown globule that was... On her body that maybe should have been checked out before. Anyway. (laughs) So yeah, she admitted that she felt better then and she calmed down. So I popped that little appetizer in a specimen container to show the doctor. He was amazed by the size of it. But anyway, uh, she had an x-ray to make sure that there was nothing else stuck in her airway or esophagus. And everything was okay and she went home. And hopefully... After this, she had a better grasp of her C's. Groan. I know, that's bad. Anyway, that is my story for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And the lesson here is please chew your food thoroughly. All right? No big chunks of meat. Chew, chew, chew. Before I end today's show, I was wondering if you could go check out my Patreon account. If you go in to the Patreon site, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and put in my podcast name, Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, you will find there all my episodes, and you will see what you can do to help me out a little bit financially. It helps me to pay for a lot of the costs that I have for the show and you do get special perks and bonuses when you sign up if you're able to sign up and if you're unable to do that because we don't all have a little bit of extra money to put aside maybe you could go to iTunes and leave me a review or a rating and that would mean a lot to me so thank you very much I look forward to part two of the Harold Freddie Shipman story. Until then, this is Karen Wickham from STAT, shocking traumas and treatments, where sometimes it's the <coughs> cure that kills you. <laughs>